Welcome to What Won't You Say, a woman-centered podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Mastic. Stick around for the season to be inspired by amazing women who bravely delve into the stories of their lives, giving hope and inspiration to others. Together, we will explore such a wide array of topics that you will be asking yourself, what won't you say? Welcome back to another episode of What Won't You Say, the Summer Storyteller Series. It's very hard to say. I did well. Uh, we're back with Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Hello. So, Jackie, we're at the part of your story where you're getting, re- you're done with the benefits. Uh, you're hanging on to all the good fuzzy feelings and the awkward feelings of seeing ex's families and <laughs> strange conversations and too much, too much love. And uh, you're, you're now what, heading into your first surgery? Yes. So in my surgery sequence, we are planning a three-step surgery, well, three separate surgeries. Um, and the first one is March of 2010. Uh, my, my parents and I, we go down to Cleveland and, uh, the night before surgery, I have to do my last and final colon clean out in the shared rest, shared hotel room with my parents. It was a nightmare. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It was awful. Um, and also, and also this is like way too much information, but that's why you're here. Um, I chose blue Gatorade because that was my favorite Gatorade. <laughs> oh, no. I can never, I've never touched blue Gatorade ever again since that time. Um, it was not a good time. I'm so sorry you don't have a drunken story as to why you don't <laughs> touch blue Gatorade anymore. Because it's always like, I had tequila once on my 21st birthday and never drank it again. New, yeah. new. No, no. uh, so also this is, this is not my first major surgery at this point, right? But it is the first one that, that I at this point in my life. So I've had this heart surgery also at the end of when I graduated from undergrad, I did have a a breast reduction. So I have had surgery, even elective surgery, Mm -hmm. but nothing like this, where I know I'm coming in for a major surgery. I'm losing organs. And also I know that I will be in the hospital for at least a week recovering. Like they have set that expectation. So do you feel um, a little prepared for it? Because, um, breast reduction surgery, especially at that time was quite extensive as well. Like a lot of like tubes and drainage and it was, but I was out, I got sent home the next day, Mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, as long as, you know, you wake up and you can pee, they're like, see you later. Um, this was different by peeing blood, but out (laughs) (laughs) basically, (laughs) um, this particular surgery, the purpose of this surgery was to remove my entire colon and to give me what is called an end ileostomy, which is where they take the end of your small intestine and they hook it up to your abdomen um, where they create the stoma, which is where the stool is actually released from your abdomen into an appliance that is attached to your abdomen. Um, the reason why I'm in the like the weeds on this is because there are different there are different kinds of ostomies, but there are specifically different kinds of ileostomies. And we'll talk about that later. Um, the reason why this one is an end ileostomy is because the whole point of this surgery is to remove the very diseased colon and also to give your intestines some time to heal. So they do the end ileostomy because um, your intestine doesn't need to, your small intestine doesn't need to do anything at this point other than just shoot stuff out your stomach. Like that's mm-hmm. all it's got to do. The rest of your body has to do the healing because we've removed. I mean, your colon is well, what it's like feet long like it's Mm -hmm. it's massive um also i asked my surgeon if i could have photos of my colon once it was removed because one does 
I asked for videos and he said no, but I did get photos. So I have photos of my horrendously, horrifically awful disease colon sitting on like a surgical table because um, I wanted to see it and because I wanted to put it in my blog, of course. Um, so we show up for surgery. Um, I don't remember the pre-op of that one because now they're all mixed together. Uh, I don't remember being terribly nervous because at this okay. point, everyone in my life knew. Once I decided to to make the choice to have surgery, I knew I couldn't hide it anymore because I knew I would have to be out for extended periods of time. The recovery from each one of these surgeries was six to eight weeks. Mm. So six to eight weeks, three times minimum over the course of six months nine months, nine months. It was the first surgery. Then I would have to wait six months for the next one. And then I'd wait six, three months for the final one. No. Well, how many, I can't do math. What am I trying to do here? Anyway, long time is what I'm saying. Recovery it, from all of this is a long time. So that, so the process of that surgery is generally three steps and three surgeries. Yes. Okay. Yes. Most of the time. So yeah, we are facing, uh, Lots of recovery time. Most of these are a three-step done by this surgeon. It's kind of a surgical preference, mm -hmm. um, but I think the safest, smartest way is a three-step. And let me, yes, six, six months in between and then three months for the last one. Yes, it's a nine-month process. Okay. Um, so the first surgery, I'm in there. They're, you know, pre-op, they give you an IV. They hook up all the things, right? There are photos of me sort of just like waiting in pre-op. Um, my moon face is still huge. I'm looking like I'm ready to get the show on the road because I am. Like my life is garbage at this point. I'm not doing anything. I'm not going anywhere. I'm unable to interact with the world at this point. Wow. I've lost my job. I have no yeah. money. You know, I've isolated myself from most of my friends and family. So I'm ready to sort of get the show on the road at sure. this point. Um, the surgery happens. I don't know much about the surgery. I wasn't, you know, aware for it. Um, I wake up in recovery and uh, I remember this is the thing my parents said. They said that when I woke up from recovery, I sounded healthier, hmm. like despite, you know, grog of anesthesia hmm. and stuff, but they were like, you know how, when you're sick and your voice changes, like a little bit of it is raspy, but just sort of like when you have like autoimmune infection, yeah. like sometimes like you just sound different. And they were like, you sounded healthier for the wow. first time in months. I didn't know that, but I was like, that seems like a pretty interesting indicator of you remove this gigantic organ that's literally killing you from the inside out and instantly you sound better yeah yeah like even the idea of sounding more energetic or yeah 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 i gotcha so i've also never had a major surgery like this before so mm -hmm. i also i don't know what recovery looks like or um I've never had an abdominal surgery so i don't know that you know when you blink basically your stomach hurts like yeah. ever Oh, also, I forgot to mention pretty big part. They told me that I was going to have a laparoscopic surgery. I woke up with a gigantic incision on my stomach. Um, wow. They told me that they were, huh, this is what happened. I'm wheeling to the, the OR. I'm in the bed. I've got the thing on my, you know, like the cap on my head. Mm. I've got my, I'm ready to go. And I'm waiting outside the, the OR in the hallway on the bed. And my surgeon comes over and he, again, everybody, these like men, like tapping me on the shoulder of just mm. like, okay, we're going to do this open today. 
What was the reasoning? The reasoning, which he told me much later, was because my tissues were actually so frail from mm. steroids that they didn't, they thought that it would com- be compromised by doing it laparoscopically. They needed to be able to see, like really see what they were doing, which makes sense. But don't tell me that before I'm about to go under Two anesthesia. Seconds. Two seconds. Don't even give me a choice. No. And it wasn't yeah. even like, how do you think? What do you feel? Like, mm. I didn't, he was telling me what we were doing. There was no, how do you, you know, like there was no collaboration mm. on that, which is fine. I didn't need it to be collaborated, but the whole, I mean, up until this point, it was laparoscopic, every meeting, every, yeah. everything we were planning for that. So I wake up and I have this you know, probably six inch incision on my abdomen that I didn't expect. And which also therefore made my recovery much harder. Yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah. uh, Again, like you, you cough, you sneeze, you roll, you, you do everything. It all impacts your abdomen and we don't realize it when our abdomen is fine until it's got a massive hole in it, you know? Not to mention now you're missing an organ, everything's shifting and moving. And, yes. <laughs> you know, in the abdomen re- region. Yeah. So like, there, it's just like chaos is kind yeah. of what's going on. Right. So I, the, I come out of recovery. I know that I'm in the room and I know that I basically am sleeping the rest of that day where my memories start to kick in again is that night, the night after surgery. And it's late. It's, you know, it's like two, three in the morning or something. And I wake up and I am in like, something wrong pain again the same Mm -hmm. kind of like something is bad and wrong here i'm in so much pain and i have a roommate at this hospital um which again cleveland is great the h floor which is where they do colorectal surgery is really great the nurses there are top-notch they're all trained in this type of surgery Mm -hmm. it's really a great place to be but they still make you share rooms with people when everybody's like shitting their faces off and it seems like maybe we could have private rooms but we don't so I'm crying and I'm, I'm buzzing the, the nurse. I'm just like buzzing a lot. You know, you, mm. you do it in increments, right? Where you're like, buzz, I'm in pain. Mm. Can you please come? And then they don't come. And See then it's an hour. slightly more frantic of like, please come. I'm, it's getting bad, right? And then it's like, oh my God, please get over here. And then you can only buzz so many times before they literally ignore you. They yeah. just stop responding to you. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm crying now and I'm, I'm starting to like, you know, moan or groan in more pain and uh my roommate now is calling like hey she's really struggling can we get someone in here and the nurse finally comes in and she's pissed she is mad that Mm -hmm. she has to come in here and i'm telling her like i am in real struggle bus pain right now like i don't know what's going on um i i don't know I don't know anything about medication schedules at this point in my hospitalizations. I don't know anything about um, pain pumps. I don't Mm. know anything. I just know that like I am, this is bad news. And she very, very condescendingly tells me that I have not buzzed for my medications. That's why I'm in so much pain. Oh, it's your job. Got it. It's my fault. And also um, because I'm not pressing my pain pump because I'm sleeping and, and I, I, Again, legally, I understand that they they can't come in and hit that pain pump for me. Mm. I get that. That totally makes sense. Um, but also, I'm there by myself. I've just had an open surgery hours before. And you're not staying on my pain meds. And I can't stay on my pain meds. So now I've gone who knows how many hours with no pain meds. None. And by the way, what is the pain med they're giving you? 
I am on a, a cocktail, <laughs> a real right. serious cocktail. So the person on, on the cocktail of meds that have just had open surgery, you're the one who's supposed to track. I got gotcha. you. Yes. Okay, good. That's, that's always a very um, smart and safe and practical uh, solution to that. Yes. Yeah. And also get mad at the patient yeah. who didn't know this and is now suffering. And get mad for um, doing your job, having yeah. to do your job. Yeah. And the way, like th- what I have learned about me, I assume this is like this for most bodies, but for mine, like staying on top of pain meds yeah. is good. The second you start to not stay on top, you have to work harder to it's it's harder to maintain the pain. It's not like, oh, we'll just take that pill and it comes back down. Like you have to increase or double or change the method of delivery to get it to actually come back down. So once you've let the pain go so far, it's much harder to reel it back in. That is all bodies. And there is actually, which you're probably aware of something called a pain loop. Yeah. And if you, if you get out of sync with your meds, you let it go too far. You can go into that pain loop or even meds can't touch it. And then, as you said, you have to like do all these alternate you know methods to try to do that. But it, we're in a fascinating culture of that too, where they think everybody's drug seeking. And yes. so they're not educating more and more to say, get in front of your pain. That's why you have these meds get in front of it. So you're behind, you're in, you're in horrible pain. I, I know that I have Dilaudid in my pump. I know that I'm getting maybe like an eight hour course of Toradol. I know there is, um, there's definitely like Zofran for nausea in there. Mm-hmm. I know that there, I think there are potentially two other painkillers. These surgeries, again, in my experience and from people I've talked to are particularly painful surgeries, you know, removing organs and sure. such um, to the point where we are. And again, this was also a long time ago, so protocols could have changed, but doctors were just throwing pain meds, like yeah. all different, different frequencies, different types, different ways they tackle pain. I mean, just like lots and lots and lots of pain meds. Um, so for me, I have no idea with the frequency, the time, how to stay on top of it. So that first night was horrible. The silver lining of the first night though, was that my biggest fear from surgery was waking up with a butt tube, mm-hmm. which is a tube that they shove up your butt to help with, you know, discharge and mm-hmm. getting rid of stuff because I was horrified at the prospect of a butt tube. I don't um, know who wouldn't be. Uh, right. <laughs> and it, it was something that I had friends. Um, I had met two guys at this time who had the same surgeon as me. And we were all kind of in the sequence roughly around the same time. Mm-hmm. We were never in the hospital at the same time, but due to the delights of the internet, we met each other and we're all kind of supporting each other through this. And we all were like the butt tube, man. I do not want the butt tube. <laughs> well, I didn't get the butt tube. So I woke up and I was like, ha ha, nailed it. Well, but then I learned within the next day, like the butt tube, you want the butt tube mm. because otherwise then you're shitting yourself and you are shitting yourself in a hospital bed with the most disgusting things you've ever seen in your life. Cause it's not shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just waste. And then, and then it's the, you know, obviously you're, you know, at least the one nurse is super delightful. So yes. And, and you cannot fix it yourself when you Mm -hmm. are fresh out of surgery and you have made a mess in the bed you can't be like no problem i'll get up clean them sheets and we'll get you literally lay there until they can come help you sit up and stand up because you can't do it on your own and then or you lay in the bed and they change it while you're in the bed the role yeah yep either way like dignity gone any sort of self-confidence out the window right you feel and again 
these nurses are the delightful ones. The ones right. that come and change you right. are the kindest people on the planet because they know they get it. But you still have a hard time getting over yourself and mm -hmm. how mortifying this is, right? This is in, in our world that we live in when you can't take care of yourself in these scenarios, you're the lowest of the low. Hmm. And that was the first couple nights in the hospital is like literally me just like shitting out all this horrendous stuff that's inside of me needing to call, not being able to stay on top of pain meds. Like the first couple days were rough, yeah. especially because the thing that they do the next day, like every abdominal surgery, they tell you, you have to get up and start walking immediately. Yeah. yeah. I think that's common in surgeries, but particularly with bowel related surgeries, um, the reason they want you to walk is to wake your bowels up to make sure everything's working. That happens after anesthesia of every surgery. But when you remove your bowels, they really need to make sure that they are working. Mm. So um, the last thing you want to do is stand up and start moving around. Yeah. Um, for and, for and I, a plethora of reasons. Right. Yeah. And, and I have a couple pictures of me doing this. I made people take pictures of me, even though I knew I really didn't want them. And honestly, in hindsight, I wish that I had made, I wish that I had more photos from this mm. time. I was horrified by how I looked based on the weight gain and mm -hmm. all of this stuff. But I, you forget, you sure. forget. And so I have a couple of these photos of me holding on to my IV pole, you know, taking very slow, painful steps around, you know, in the beginning, they put the strap around you so you don't yeah. fall um around your abdomen yeah it's terrible <laughs> but you have to you have mm. to you have to make sure everything's working and then you know when you do have to use the restroom so i have an ostomy at this point you know you have to empty it into a container so they can measure how much you're outputting um there is when you have a disease of your digestive tract there is a lot of scenarios in which you really need to let go of any pride <laughs> Sure. And I say dignity and I mean it like, I know yeah. dignity is supposed to be the thing that we like keep no matter what. But when you're like calling a nurse to say, Hey, come measure how much poop I have out of my stomach. It's pretty rough to feel like you're like really hot shit in that, in those moments. You're not, you're not feeling pretty awesome, you know? Yeah. Wow. So how long in total did you end up staying in the hospital for that? It was it six full days. That one, I think that one was a full week, yeah. it was seven full days. Um, and you were at the Cleveland Clinic. I was at Cleveland Clinic. Okay. And, uh, you know, you also go through a very slow introduction to food back in. You know, you're on clears for a yeah. few days. Um, well, you're probably NPO and then you're on clears for a few days and then you are on soft foods. And then, you know, and hospital food is garbage and horrible anyway. So, like, everything sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just not fun. And my parents have stayed in Cleveland for the week at a hotel um, mm -hmm. so they can be there. And they're, honestly having a pretty great time eating at all the restaurants in Cleveland and trying not to like dangle food in front of my face, but still mentioning food. And like, they're like, Oh, we went to melt today. It's this great grilled cheese place. And You're I was like, like, shut it. Shut up. <laughs> I mean, I was glad they were having a good time, yeah. but I was like, this is not fair. You can um, just say, have a, I'm having a good time and not, right. not talk about the gooey <laughs> grilled cheese sandwich that you had. Oh no. It was like four cheeses. And yeah. it was like some sort of seasoning on it. Yeah, I was like, this is rude and sad, but also I miss having human c connection, so please yeah. don't leave. <laughs> um, so I get discharged, and the, the the doctor recommends that I stay in a hotel for a week locally so I don't drive the four hours home and have an issue and then, like, have to come back. Yeah. So we do that, and it goes fine, and then we go home. 
And I start trying to figure out like, what, what is life with this ostomy? Because Mm -hmm. there is a learning curve and there's your own stigma and your own ableism. And then what you think other people are going to think, but mostly in those first couple days. So there are what is called um, WOCN nurses and they are wound ostomy continence nurses. They specialize in ostomies Um, and they are the saints of all they're they're right up there in my opinion with like hospice nurses like the ones who do the real sincere hard work um and they come to your house and they teach you how to have an ostomy mm-hmm. because there is a lot to learn there are appliances and wafers and barriers and tapes and seals and you know all these like lit- literal products that you need to keep this thing stuck to you so that way you can collect your stool, but also so that way you don't spring a leak because mm. your ostomy can leak. And then you have shit leaking everywhere, right? Which seems like the worst thing that could ever happen in the world. And the first time it happens, it is the worst thing that can happen in the world. But like you get better at it over yeah. time, you know? Yeah. Um, there's so much to learn though. And, and the other part of it too is hospitals have uh, agreements with supply manufacturers of ostomy companies. And so like this hospital had an agreement with a company called Hollister. So I got sent home in Hollister products Sure. and guess what? Hollister products didn't work great for me. Right. And so what I had to learn on my own again was there's this whole world out there of other companies and other supplies that you can try. You can get free samples, but you don't even know they exist. You just know what's working. What's on you is not working. Yeah. And you're real frustrated because no one wants to have a leaking shit bag on their stomach. Yeah. And then the doctors are in with whoever they yes. is providing it. So then they don't even offer other solutions. No, you because, don't even know what's yeah, out there. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, so I mean like a real steep learning curve on all of this stuff because the the other thing is like when you get set up in the hospital, like you wake up with an appliance on, that's mm-hmm. what like the bag is called. It's called an appliance. Mm-hmm. And uh, you are mostly laying down for the next week, right? Yeah. Aside from also you learn to be a back sleeper. I've never been a back sleeper. Ugh. I'm a back sleeper now because you cannot lay on your side because of your stomach, because your incision. And then also you can't lay on your stomach because of your bag because you don't want to yeah. put pressure on it. So, um, there's just so many changes, so many things to learn. And it's really overwhelming. And it's really frustrating too, because in theory, you can get three, four days out of an appliance. If you're real, you're real lucky, you get maybe Mm. a week. Um, Sometimes you're changing your appliance four times a day because you can't get it to stay on. Yeah, And you can't get it to stop leaking. And those days are the days when you're just like, fuck this. This is so like, I'm so mad. I'm so angry. I feel again, like I can't leave my house and I've done all this stuff and and none of it matters. And you're just sort of like in this anger, shame spiral of why doesn't this work? Like, do I have to live in a bathtub? I mean, why is this? Yeah. Yeah. So then do you end up finding some sort of community to sort of, you know, to, to ease into with this? Because obviously that seems like the logical next step is stepping out of the shame spiral and, and maybe connecting with other people other than via the internet. Yeah. Um, so in the beginning it was all internet. Like I said, you know, the mm-hmm. only people I knew who were, who either had IBD or who were facing these surgeries or had ostomies were internet friends. Um, I still didn't know a single person in real life, 
But I found out about Camp Oasis, which is a camp for kids put on by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation um, for kids with IBD and ostomies. And I went to summer camp as a kid and I loved it. It was like the some of the best times of my mm -hmm. youth was overnight summer camp. Yeah. And this is a resident camp. It's a week long for these kids. And now that I know their lives and I also know what summer camp is like for healthy kids, most of these kids couldn't do summer camp if it wasn't a specialized camp like Camp Oasis was made for them. Wow. So I decide I want to get involved with this at this camp. So I call up our local chapter. I go, I have a meeting with our camp director. And I don't, again, I don't expect this, but I'm in there and she shows me this like video, this like promo video about Camp Oasis. And we're talking about it. And I'm telling her that, you know, I don't really, I have an ostomy now, but like, I don't know anybody with an ostomy. And I just start bawling in her sure. office. I am like, like the first person that I really can like, I, right. Yeah. Luckily, you know, she's this really, I mean, she's runs a camp for sick kids, right. She's a delightfully kind person, but I like, I was, I was a little mortified because I went in there to be like, I want to be a professional camp counselor. And then I was like, I hate everything. Right? So <laughs> She's like, you're, you're perfect actually. Cause you understand. Yeah. yeah you get it. So I, Luckily, I'm chosen to be a camp counselor that year. I show up for counselor orientation, which is the day before the kids arrive. And instantly I'm in a room with, I don't know, let's say 10 to 15. I don't know how many of, the, of us, but people with IBD for mm -hmm. the first time. And we're all roughly the same age. We're all kind of in our early to mid 20s. Um, there's a couple outliers in there, but most part, we're all here. A lot of, there was a range of people who were diagnosed as kids, people who were recently diagnosed, people with ostomies, people like every, the gamut was run. And it was literally like, I am home, right? Yeah. I just felt like, and it took, it still took me a minute to like share, you know, things. The other thing is, you know, it's summer camp, right? There's a lake, there's beaches, there's stuff. And a lot of people with ostomies refuse to go swimming. They think that they can't, or they think other people will be grossed out by it. And they're really just like, it, it's a lot of concern. It's, it's a, it's a thing. It's an, it's a, it's a yeah. big deal in the ostomy community for a lot of people. And I saw kids running around with their ostomies out. I saw other counselors running around with their ostomies out, just like living life. Yeah. And that was the first time I, oh my God, I'm going to cry again. <laughs> That's to be expected. I mean, you finally get come into your own with this and, and start accepting yourself. It was the first time I ever saw anything like that. But more importantly, that I saw that people were not horribly ashamed right. by their ostomies or limited. Yeah. They just were like, existing you know and it wasn't and even like you know the boys they they didn't have shirts on over that you know they would just they had their shirts off they just had swim trucks on the way people exist in the world yeah, normally right um and i i i remember i thanked that counselor i thanked him for me and for the kids yeah absolutely that first year changed my whole life it changed everything for me like i i'm still very close with people I met that year. That was 2010. Um, oh, so 13 years ago. People that, you know, maybe we don't talk frequently, but when something happens, we show up for each other. Um, and, and our camp specifically serviced Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. And so 
some of us in Kentucky, some parts of Kentucky, I think. And so some of us are all over the place and Mm -hmm. we go like, you know, there have been a so-and-so's in bad shape. We're going to Ohio this weekend, you know, um, it, we've been to each other's weddings now, you know, like it's, we have been able to grow up together, um, in a different way not in your youth, but sort of in mm-hmm. your adulthood with this thing that most people don't have, right? It is an instant understanding. It's an instant connection. Um, there's an instant lack of requirement to explain yourself. Mm-hmm. You just can show up to the best of your abilities. And um, what I got out of Camp Oasis was like a family. Um and the kids get that too. Like the kids come back every year and they say, you know, like we wait all year for this mm. one week and, you know, our best friends are here, but we live so far apart. We only see each other when we're here. Right. It's, it's more magical than Disney. Like it's, yeah, it's a really special place. I mean, you know, your emotion makes sense because everybody regardless on earth just want to be seen. Yeah. And you, you were seen for who you are with no shame attached, no, no judgment. You were just seen for who you are. And these kids were just being who they were. Seen and celebrated. Yeah. You know, it's great. Um, And the kids are all like, I don't love this phrase, but they're all old souls and tiny bodies because they've Mm. been through so much. They had all been through what I had been through, but by the age of 10, you know, like I was trying to process what was happening to me at 25 and they are, the camp is seven to 17. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a wide array of kids. Mm-hmm. And my first year I got campers that were 10 to 12 years old. And I thought it was like some weird, cruel joke because I said I wanted teenagers. Mm-hmm. And um, in hindsight, oh, I'm so glad I got 10 to 12 year olds. <laughs> they knew better than you did. <laughs> <laughs> so much better. The teenagers were obviously way too cool for everything. Yeah. And I um, don't think that, honestly, I had the confidence that could have withstood teenagers that mm. first year. Say they um, knew more than you did as far as yes. assigning you that. Yeah. And I knew the little ones, like, I know I didn't have capacity for the real little ones. Like, I just, I am not a real mothering kind of a, and I, like, small kids freak me out, like, and lots of them, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I had, like, I had a co-counselor, maybe there were 10 to 12 kids and everything's 10 to 12 ages, 10 to 12, maybe mm. 10 to 12 campers. And you know, you're a parent for 24 seven for a week and, uh, you don't get away from them ever, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> which is delightful. But what I learned about that age and what's really special about that age, particularly at that camp was one, they are old enough to understand sort of like autonomy and understanding what they need to do. Like I took it as a, a time to teach them that like you know your mom does everything for you now but maybe Mm. when you go home you start saying I'm going to be in charge of my meds now right like you can teach them those things but also they're still young enough to think that I am hilarious Mm -hmm. and that was the best part right was because it was like we could be it was still the age where like you could be silly at summer camp everybody gets greeted with a high five right we have dance breaks in the middle of lunch like that the vibe of summer camp when the kids who are loving it they're mm-hmm. that age. And then from every year after, I think I did, I did five summers at Camp Oasis, but the one summer I did two, I did one summer at Wisconsin and one summer here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that age group is magical for all of these things. And, and it helped me enjoy camp so much more because again, I wasn't thinking about teenagers judging me mm -hmm. and I wasn't panicking over like six-year-olds that are homesick nonstop. It was just the fun part. It was just fun. And we did all the summer camp things that you do, but the camp is designed to support them. So there are porta potties all over camp and there is medical staff that is everywhere all the time. And there's built-in rest periods and there's like food that is designed so that way they mm. can all eat it without issue. You know, it's just, it's a thoughtful practice and it really makes camp accessible in a way that it's not for these kids and in, in most capacities. I would imagine as well, um, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong. The other part that seems so magical to me is because every bit of the environment was catered to in the inclusivity of what the people needed there that you, in a sense, sort of forgot about it. Yeah. It was normalized. Everybody was comfortable with who they are and what they were doing. And if you had spillage or you had this, you had that, no one, like no one gave two shits. It's like, we were all here we understand there's no shame in what's going on with you. And also um, it's a way that you hope when you have some sort of chronic illness that the world would be that we're, we're going to be softer and gentler for yeah. you. And then you're, we're going to make it. So you forget that you're, that you're any different than anybody else that you're othered in any way. Is that true? Yeah. Ab ab yes, absolutely. And I don't think that I told this when I told the camp story from my, when I was a camp kid, when I shit myself, but you know, one of, one of the things I always told the kids was that at night, if it's late at night, we're all sleeping. You have any issues, anything is wrong. You don't feel good. Anything you wake me up. That's, that's the rule. Yeah. And, and one night I did, I had a kid wake me up and she said, I, I tried to go to the bathroom. There was like a hallway and she's like, I didn't make it. And so she had, you know, shit in the hallway. And so I was like, you know what? Go change yourself. I got you. Right. Yeah. And so she just cleaned herself up and went back to bed and I called another counselor and we spent the wee hours of the morning cleaning mm. it up. And sure, I was tired and that part sucked. Right. But the takeaway was she trusted me enough to wake me up and it didn't ruin her whole camp experience the way that it did when I had an accident at camp and yeah. no one knew about it. Nobody, you know, no, none of the other campers found out about it. We also had like a bed check system. So that way, if there were accidents in the night, mm -hmm. we could clean their stuff and get it back to them before anybody yeah. saw or found out. Like the, it just was, it, it really was like you were saying, like the, all the barriers of the world were gone and then mm -hmm. people could, kids could just be kids and we could just be goofy adults and, you know, we could focus on color wars instead of yeah. you know like feeling you know there are kids running around with ostomies and kids running around with tpn which is um nutri um like nutrition through through a mm -hmm. bag like through a feeding tube basically you know all these things that make them weird at home mm -hmm. are just yeah. like yeah. super normal nobody thinks twice about it you know i love too that the overarching story that i keep hearing from you which i think is what it feel so emotional too is how healing this was for you yeah healing that little girl experience when you were at camp and that happened healing all these other awkward moments I mean it feels like it had to just feel very healing it did it, it really did and and particularly like you know I never put those two together until like right now of my camp story and and but mm -hmm. yeah I think you're right and the other takeaway here too is 
I didn't really talk to a lot of people outside of camp that week because you can't like you're with kids all the time, right? You don't have time to like make phone calls and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was not connected to my family or my boyfriend very much that week. And it was fine. Which was and so it was nice. Good, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, I wasn't disappointed by him mm -hmm. because of what it was just like. I was I had my own thing. This was one of the first times mm -hmm. that I had my thing. This was my thing. And he couldn't understand it at all. It's fine. Yeah. But it was like, this is who I am now. Like I. This is where I think I went from talking about being a sick person to being like, I won't even say an advocate, but to being louder about mm -hmm. being a sick person because I wanted to make sure those kids could go to camp. And in the beginning, it was free for them. They just had to sign up. It's changed now because the world is expensive and everything sucks. But I was passionate. I wanted that experience for kids. I wanted that experience for me. I wanted to keep going back. Like I was like, mm -hmm. can I come until I'm old and gray? Can I be a counselor here till forever? You're going to have to kick me out of coming to this camp. Well, not to mention also that you had shared with us that with both boyfriends and even the one, you know, that you are with at this time, that you absorb just their identities. You had, you did yes. not have your own identity. So the first time you were able to get your own identity from him was as a sick person. Yeah. That's not fun. That's not a fun differentiating, you know, but then you go and do this experience at Camp Oasis. Now you have your own identity, your own thing. Yes. Away from your family, uh, your upbringing, your boyfriend, all the things that you just absorbed through osmosis because you didn't have a thing yet. So that, that yeah. had to feel very liberating. It did. Like I remember leaving camp that first week, that first year and just being like, Oh my God. Like I have at the end of camp, all the counselors usually go out for like a meal where we just like swear all the time because you can't swear <laughs> the whole week. Right. And you just like drink beer and say, fuck a lot. Um, they build up. You got to get them all out. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like a lot. And a lot of people have a long ride home. So there's sort of like, you just got to like, Oh my God, you have to like decompress <laughs> the whole week. Um, because while it's delightful, it's still children. Yeah. yeah it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of needs within that too. Yeah. So, regardless of, of, of any type of child at any age they're not your children and they're in yes. a foreign you know like they're in a foreign place to their home and so yes. they're very needy yeah and most of us were not parents and then yeah. to go from not being a parent to literally having 10 children that are your children right it's a lot right, right. so like you know be kind to your camp counselors um so we have like this decompression and i just remember like looking around the table and being like like I could see myself in them and mm -hmm. I knew I had friends now. Like I knew I had people I could call or text. Like I just, it was like I exited a different person because I had everything I didn't have in the beginning. I had yeah. friends. I had acceptance. I had confidence. I had real life examples of people living this way. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw, I was wildly inspired by these children who were just like, yeah, this is our life. And we just keep on keeping on, you know, mm -hmm. like I didn't teach them a damn thing that first week. Right. Like I just learned everything from those kids. Like that whole week, you know, in hindsight, I'm like talking out loud. I, I really do think that week is what changed everything yeah. because 
I was okay with talking about it more after that week. And even if I was only okay with talking about it to those certain people, that then became the catalyst to talking about it to other people and to talking to people in my life and more details to my family. And, you know, I mean, no one in my family, like, saw my ostomy right and i'm not saying that they should have asked mm -hmm. but i'm saying that like everything was still like this is under wraps we don't we don't really talk about this and we don't really you know like nobody's curious nobody's asking questions it's just like i have given them the vibe that we do not talk about this mm -hmm. and now i had this whole experience where it was like we talk about this and we we make the jokes we are no longer the butt of the joke mm -hmm. because we're making the jokes right like we are aware when you can look at a bad life stance and collectively make a joke about it, there's healing in that, right? Yeah. Because it's not a weapon anymore and it's not shame anymore. So that week at Camp Oasis, that first year, it literally drove the entire way I interacted with my life with IBD and the rest of the world. We're going to leave it right there. That's a great ending. <laughs> And uh, wow, thank you again. Thank you so much for trusting me, being vulnerable, you know, coming on here and trusting me to, you know, do the story for you. Like I, you know, I, I, I really do feel um, special. You know, I feel, I feel really makes me feel good that, that you feel safe with me to do this and, and walk through it. I know it's just so much. It's such a big undertaking. I know there's a lot of you know, medical trauma and PTSD and moments, you know, that, that I see you kind of well up in you through this. And so just thank you very much for, for trusting me for this. I, you know, I want to be like, well, thank you. I want to do like the thing that we yeah. always do. And we're like, well, thank you. Thank you. But um, thank you because this was your idea, you know, and, and you're a person I can trust. And I trust with not just, uh, you know, the technicals of like putting a podcast out, mm. but you are a safe person. You know, mm. I, I know I can do this with you and I know that you're going to get the best out of it. Right. You're not just like a passive listener who's like you're engaged. And, you know, we talk about this and we make plans for it. It's not just what we're doing right here. Um, and and I think that it's showing because, uh, you know, I've shared with you, I've, I've gotten great positive feedback and people have been really kind and really um, appreciative of the story that we're telling. And so, you know, thank you for giving me the platform. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. And with that love fest, <laughs> we're going to see you all in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening and um, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to What Won't She Say. You can find us at whatwontshesay.com, on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else that you like to find your podcast.